Good morning. We come to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 12 this morning. I don't know if you see the little clips I do. They've got me doing these uh, little one-minute teasers. It goes out on Instagram and on Facebook. I don't know if you see these things. But uh, on there, I did try to say that we've come this morning to a very difficult text. It is, some would say, one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. And it's one of the verses, set of verses that is at the center of the debate between uh, those who believe that a Christian can lose their salvation uh, and those who believe that a Christian cannot lose their salvation. And this is one of those strong texts that goes in favor in some ways of those who think you can. It's a very strong text. It's very powerful. As I read it, uh, you will feel, in a sense, the impact of the text. Now, I believe that you cannot lose your salvation. I'm going to show you this morning why I believe from the context of these verses themselves in the very text, but also in the broader teaching of Scripture, that that is not the way we should understand it. It's actually telling us the opposite. Uh, but it's a, I, I worked hard this week to do this. This is a hard text. I'm just going to encourage you to work hard this morning to hear it. Um, you know, there, there may be a little work that I'm calling you to this morning uh, as we walk through this. So hear then the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. Therefore, let us, O church... Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation to repentance from dead works of faith toward God and instructions about washings and the laying on of hands of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land has drunk the rain and often, that often falls on it, and it produces a crop useful to those for the sake of, uh, of those who cultivated it, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. And it is near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name and serving of the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. The Word of God, pray with me. Our Father, we have gathered to You. You are good and gracious. You are God who speaks and You are not silent. But we confess that many times we wrestle with Your Word to understand it, to not just know it and understand it, but to apply it. That we do not just have information in our heads, but we would have lives that are being transformed by the power of Your Word. The truth of it. Brought home by the Spirit. Would you do that this morning? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the 1730s and 40s in New England, the American uh, New England states, there was a series of religious revivals. Uh, they started under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. 
a sinner in the hands of an angry God, and some of his sermons, and a revival broke out in his church, uh, but also in churches across New England. There was a series of these revivals. They became known as the Great Awakening, uh, and it swept not only in the American colonies, but there were aspects of it experienced even back in England. These revivals became very um, controversial because of the way that people were experiencing them. There seemed to be a lot of real genuine uh, stuff going on in the lives of people responding to the gospel, uh, giving their lives to Christ, but it was also accompanied by a bunch of uh, physical phenomenon, other kinds of manifestations uh, of the Spirit, so to speak. There were people who would, who would fall down. Sometimes they would shake or they were shaking. Sometimes they were frozen and in, entranced in some way. Or uh, there was uh, uh, groaning and, and verbal and, and noises. And there was, there was all kinds of stuff that went on. Uh, in the course of these revivals across New England. And so there were those who stood up and just said, you know, those things are not of God. Those are of the devil. That is your flesh being uh, indulged, and that is not of God. There were others who were just you know, blankly and uncritically saying, all of it is from God. It's all. God is doing a wonderful thing, and all these things are there. It's everything, uncritically taking it all or just dismissing it all. And into this gap steps Jonathan Edwards again, and he writes a series of essays. Right, there are essays, he, he, was, he is considered by many to be the greatest mind ever produced in America, the most brilliant thinker that America has ever produced as a theologian. And he steps in, he writes a series of essays of, uh, about the, the thing, a surprising narrative of the conversions that were taking place, uh, you know, a short history of these revivals. But he also wrote some, uh, some real uh, decisive works. One was called... The distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God, right? The distinguishing marks of the work. How do you distinguish? Here's a work going on. Is it a work of God in His Spirit or something else? How do we know? What are the distinguishing marks? Another more famous essay that he wrote is called The Religious Affections. And he does basically the same kind of thing. What are the religious affections, the true spiritual affections, versus the other things that may be experienced in the life that are not necessarily of the Spirit of God? And so he writes these things, and they become um, a very helpful theology of revival. And what Edward says is this, is that people have a lot of experiences. It was happening then. It happened before then. It's been happening since then. It happens in the life of almost every church. There are people who have various religious experiences. And he says that these experiences may be of the Spirit of God, or they may not, and you have to distinguish. You have to be discerning to discern whether these things are of the Spirit of God or not. That seems to be common sense. The Scripture tells us elsewhere to be discerning of the spirits uh, and to understand. And so it's not, you know, rocket science here, but he is saying this. And if you get nothing else, this is when, I, when we go through this text, the thing I want you to get from the text, I'm going to tell it to you up front. You can take it home with you, and uh, I still want you to follow me because it is God's Word. But is, the point is this. You have to look beyond the experiences to the fruits of the experiences Right to determine and to see whether it is of the Spirit of God. The experience itself is not determinative. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. How do we know? We know by the fruits that it produces in the life of the person who experienced them. Is there an, an increased love to Christ and a devotion to Christ and a desire to serve Christ? Is there an increased desire for holiness and a pursuit of a holy life 
Is there increased service and energy to, to, to pursue the kingdom and to serve his kingdom and your king? Right? Those are the fruits of the Christian life. That's what the genuine Christian life is about. So if those experiences lead to those kind of things, there's a lot of room to say those things are of the spirit of God. Look at the fruit. Because the devil's not going to produce that kind of fruit. It's only by the Holy Spirit that one can say Jesus is Lord and to pursue those things. So we have to look beyond the experiences. This text is going to give us some experiences. And, the, and I believe what the author is saying is you have to look beyond the experiences to know whether these people are truly Christian. He is not saying these are Christians who lost their salvation. And you better look out or you might blow it and never get back. It's not what he's saying. There is a warning here. There is, there is I think, an encouragement for us and, and something to, to push us. You know, there's a soberness to what he is saying. But what he is saying is you have to look beyond the experiences to the fruit of the experiences to see if they are of God. And with some folks in the life of the church, it's been true for the entire history of the church, from the time of Jesus and those who followed him beyond, that not all the experiences of people who show up at church are of the Spirit of God. The concern of the author here is that there are people in church who have had various experiences, prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or had some experience that they could talk about that was very spiritual or whatever. But his concern is that the people, some people with those experiences, they are not growing in Christ. It is not producing the fruit that a genuine work of the Spirit of God produces. They're sluggish. They're drifting. In John 15, 8, Jesus says this, it is by this that my Father is glorified, by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove, demonstrate, show that you are actually my disciples. Right? This is what honors God, is that, that there is a fruitfulness that proves a genuine work of the Spirit of God. There is a harvest. The proof of discipleship is not past experiences, but present fruitfulness. When people tell me about their past experiences, I'm often looking at them or asking them, what is God doing in your life right now? How are you growing right now? How is your faith? How robust is your faith in Christ right now? Because all of those experiences are indeterminative unless he continues to live and to bear fruit. Present fruitfulness. We are saved, as the reformers were wont to say, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And we, met, we need to never lose sight of that. Don't hear anything other this morning than that. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Amen. But the reformers would go on to say, but faith... True and saving faith is never alone. It's like a seed that produces a harvest. It, it, it's, it's accompanied by fruit. You can see the work of the Spirit in the life in whom he has done this work. And so in verses 1 to 3, he expresses his concern. In 4 to 6, he describes some of these experiences. But then in verses 7 to 12, he's going to come back and remind us that these experiences are not determinative. He's going to remind us that it is by their fruits you will know them. So 
We'll walk through it in verses 1 to 3. It says, therefore. Therefore, you know, is a conclusion. It's pointing backward to things he had just been talking about. But he's saying, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on. It's the only way that we know that there's been a genuine work of God, is if we go on. Let us leave the elementary teachings and go on to maturity, an actual maturing, fruitful Christian life, not laying again these foundations, right? So he's saying, let's go on. This is the author's concern, the lack of maturity in God's people. He's writing to these people, the Hebrews, and there may be some amongst them who are you know, very mature and show these fruits, but there's a, a significant group that are not growing. They're not leaving the elementary things. They're not pursuing a deeper life in Christ and in holiness in his kingdom, right? They're complacent with whatever experiences they've had. This is his concern. They, in verse, if you were here for the sermon that Stephen gave last week in, in the end of chapter 5 there, uh, leading into this, because again, 6 starts with therefore, right? In verse 12 of chapter 5, he said, you ought to be teachers by, by now, Right? You ought to know enough and have been growing enough, and not just in the basics, but you're, you're learning your scripture and your doctrine, like you're going on to understand these things. He says you ought to be able to teach by now, but I'm looking at it, and you're just not progressing. I'm just not seeing it. You're still infants, he says. At the end of chapter 5, he says you're like an infant. You still need milk. You're not ready for the solid food. I want to teach you all the stuff that I'm about to teach you in the rest of the book of Hebrews. But you're not quite ready for it. I'm going to go ahead and teach it. There are those among you, I think, who are ready for it. But for many of you, he is saying, you're not ready for solid food. You're still just kind of hanging out in the basics and in the shallows. Like infants, you're still drinking milk. You're not moving forward. You're not growing and deepening and strengthening in the Christian life. And so in verse 1, he is calling God's people to press on into maturity, past the foundation, to grow. What is the foundation? He lists them there in verses 2, 1, 2, and 3. Not laying again a foundation. What is the foundation? Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Three pairs of two. Repentance and faith toward God, instruction in washings and the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead in the eternal judgment. He gives these three uh, pairs of, uh, of, of foundation, of basic things that they need to understand. These are things that the early church, if someone, you know, an adult professes faith in Christ, they would be catechized. They would be taught some of the basics. Before you came to baptism, you needed to understand repentance from your sin, right? If faith toward God, you needed to understand about the, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and to understand about, you know, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You know, the, the founding work of faith and repentance, it makes you a Christian. You need to understand the work of the Spirit in your life and you need to understand how things are going to come out in the end and the resurrection and there is an eternal judgment. That's a Christian worldview. They're the very basic things that are taught. I don't know that you can become a Christian and not understand the very basics. They catechize young Christians this way and then bring them to baptism. And so repentance and faith, that's obvious, a conversion and salvation. You turn from your sin and you turn toward God. The middle one is a little difficult, more difficult, the whole washing and laying on of hands, not language that we we use. I believe that, that the author here, he is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. That is a Jew, a Jewish Christian writing to a Jewish Christian church or group of people, and he's building on Old Testament rites and imagery 
but they're imagery that point to uh, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? He says of washings and of the laying on of hands, right? We lay on hands when we, we're going to do that here in a few weeks when we ordain new officers. And the laying on of hands as you pray is the image of the impartation of the Holy Spirit, right? The idea of, of, of the authority of the Spirit of God in their leadership is the laying on of hands. This was an Old Testament image and new. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 6 says this, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water, washing you, and you shall be clean from your sin and from all of your idols. I'm going to cleanse you, that washings of cleansing of sin and the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, right? There is this washing and the giving of the Spirit. And then the last two, the hope of the resurrection, the reality of judgment, basic eschatology. These are the foundations, repentance and faith, the giving of the Spirit and its empowerment, His empowerment, and the resurrection and the judgment. He says everybody knows these things. The most basic person, if you've been in church for any length of time or had anybody share with you the gospel of how you need to respond, that God, by His Spirit, saves you and changes you, and you have the hope of heaven, and there's a judgment that's coming. All right, this is the foundation. Every new convert knows these things. They are the foundation of the Christian life. And in verse 3, he expresses the hope that God is really at work among you and that we will, he will allow the Hebrews to press on. That, that, that by his grace and his work in them, in verse 3, he says, and we will do this if God permits. We'll, we will leave these elementary things and press on into maturity. And then in verses 4 to 6, you have three of the most frightening verses in the Scripture. He says we need to leave these things, and he says we will if God permits. I guess we will not if God doesn't permit, if God is not at work. There are those who will not progress, even though they've had some experiences. Because he says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, then they have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance they have been apostate. They have rejected Christ in that sense. You can't crucify him again. You can't. There's only one Savior, and if you reject him, that is the unforgivable sin, to reject Christ. He is the only way. He is the only hope. He is the only one. He's the only sacrifice. There's not another one. You can't get another one. There won't be another one. And it's impossible if you reject Christ to find salvation. Right, he is saying. But these verses, many have heard, okay, we hear this list, and it sounds like, in some ways, what Christians experience. But what I want to walk through and to say is that actually there are things that uh, Old Testament Jews that ended up not being saved experience, and people who show up at church or grow up in church and make profession may experience, but they're not determinative. And what is going to be determinative, he's going to show in his own text, as I say, we'll, we'll see it here in the, in the context of these verses. But what he is saying in verses 4 to 6 is there are some who believe, well, I'm, what I'm saying is there are some who believe that these are people who were truly saved, but they blew it, they drifted away, or they sinned it away, and there's no hope for them. That's terrifying. I, I, don't, I don't know how there can be a lot of hope and assurance in the Christian life if you live under that kind of of fear. You can drift away or sin it away, and then there's no hope. 
if you've made profession and this happens. I don't believe that's what he's saying. I think that he is saying there are those who have had these experiences, but who ultimately are not in Christ and reject Christ. And they are without hope because they're without Christ in the world. Versus those who experience these things, but also go on to maturity. The list of these experiences is not clear. It's a strange list of terms. These are not terms that you hear a lot in, you know, particularly in the teaching of Paul and in the teaching of Jesus in other places. It's not the language that is used of Christians and saved people per se, right? Normally they talk about them as saints who have been justified, who have been adopted, who have been sanctified and this work of God. Like, but these, these expressions are a little bit different. They've been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've had some experience of them. But tasting is very superficial, is it not? Right? And there are ways that we share. We, even in, we, can be, we can grow up in the church in many ways, share in the community, in the life of the Spirit, in the worship that we just had together. So many ways that we can experience uh, these things. Being enlightened is the light of the gospel Right In John 1, it says that, that Jesus is the light of the whole world and that there are those who come under that light. You can be enlightened. You can hear the gospel. How many, there's so many who hear their, the gospel and it says they're enlightened and in the, in, in that they hear the saving gospel of Christ but not necessarily saved by it. They tasted the heavenly gift. It's a very strange phrase. It's not one that you see used elsewhere, really. And so what is the heavenly gift they've tasted of? And some people will say, well, it's salvation, or it's this, or it's that. But in many ways, if you tasted the heavenly gift, it could be the Lord's Supper. In some way, you, you were enlightened. Either somebody makes a profession of faith, they join a church, you know, right? They make a profession, they join, they take communion, like they go through the motions. There are those who seem to make a good start. They taste the heavenly gift, they share in the life of the, of, the, of the church and of the spirit, of its worship and of its work, and they taste it of the good word of God, they sit under its preaching, the powers of the age to come. That's an expression, again, that, that, that is those things that were happening at that time. In chapter 2, verse 4 of Hebrews, he speaks of God testifying in signs and wonders and in various miracles. Right? These are things that he's saying that that we all saw or experienced. He's writing to people that, 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 that the powers of the age to come broke in. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus, you can say that the powers they heard is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's the beginning of the powers of the age to come expressed in the first resurrection in, in which we all hope that we will participate on, the, on that day. But they have tasted of these things. They've seen them around them, but they're not conclusive. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, 22 and 3, Jesus says this, on that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, right? there are people who have made a profession, who've heard the gospel, they've been enlightened and they've made a profession and they're probably tasting of the heavenly gifts and sharing in the life of the church. And they'll say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons? Didn't we do Christian work? Right? Didn't we do things that were spiritual or you know, shared in the Spirit in some way that these guys were able to participate? We, we cast out demons. We did many mighty works in your name. And then Jesus is going to declare to him some of the other scariest words in the Bible, I never knew you. 
Not I knew you, but you blew it, boys. Not that I, I knew you and you did good work for a little while, but you didn't, you know, stick it out. You drifted away or send it away or something. Right? He says to these people with these experiences and in involvement at some level, he says, I never knew you. And he calls them workers of lawlessness. He's saying your fruit. Yeah, I know you have these spiritual experience. You're doing these things. That's not the fruit he's looking for, things outside of you. What he's looking for is the fruit of a changed life, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of a, of a growing holiness and a love to Christ and a pressing into his kingdom. Not just doing and tasting and touching phenomenal things or church things. He says, I never knew you. Think of Judas. Could not this list be true of Judas? But in the end, it says that he was, while he was walking with Jesus those three years, he was stealing from the money bag. Right? He was experiencing the powers of the age to come. He was there as he's raising the dead, and he was there when Jesus was raised from the dead. He was, well, no, he wasn't, actually. <clears throat> but he was there. When he walked on water, he was there. Right? When, he, when the raising of Jairus' daughter, he was there. When the lame were healed and the blind saw, he tasted, he experienced, he was all of these things, but they were not determinative. Like how many Christians will say, well, I had these experiences, and so they rest on the experiences, thinking that's what it takes, you know, I'm saved because look at my, these experiences. I got a resume. These guys are saying, Jesus, look at our resume. Jesus says, I don't know you. See, all of this can be true of anyone who grew up in the church or a disciple that was following Jesus and, you know, following him around. They make profession. It was true of the Jews in Exodus. And this is the point he brings out. He's writing to Hebrews, familiar with Hebrew, Jewish, Israelite history. And, he is, and, and, and if you've been in this study with us in Hebrews 1 to 5, you'll see that he keeps comparing them to the Jews of the Exodus whose hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and who fell away. If you remember this verse in, he, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, just a couple chapters ago, he says this, Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? They heard. They were part of it. That heard, you're going to see, means a lot more than they heard a couple of words. You know, they heard, they were part of it. And he's asking the question, he's warning them. Who were they that heard and then still fell away? And the rest of the verse goes on and says, was it not those who left Egypt with Moses? Wasn't it those who experienced the ten plagues, the miraculous outpouring of God's wrath? Was it not those who were delivered from Egypt in a miraculous deliverance, who saw the parting of the Red Sea, who received the ten stones, the tablets, you know, carved by the finger of God? Did they not sit under the word of God, the, the Ten Commandments and God's revelation of his law and his own character? Did they not eat manna and quail? Didn't they follow the pillar of fire by night and of cloud by day, God's manifest presence? Wasn't it these very people who experienced these things, the ones who rebelled and fell away? The experiences were not determinative. Was their faith, their trust, in him in such a way that it produced a life, a responsive life of faith and fruitfulness. They rebelled. John Piper says, it is possible to taste the powers of the kingdom and not be of the kingdom. R. Kent Hughes says, participation in the spiritual realities of those that fall away 
though they have been enlightened or shared or tasted of the things of God, parallels the privileges of the experiences of the children of Israel in the wilderness who fell away and who died in unbelief and who were never saved. And Jesus would say, I never knew you. You wandered around with the crowd. You may have tasted of some of these things, but I never knew you. It's not uncommon in the church to make a start. There are spiritual experiences. There seems to be genuine. They taste and share in, in the Christian things. You know, like I worked with this guy. He was in, you know, the things. He was in worship. I sat down the pew from him, right? But over time, they drift away. Their hearts grow hard when they're tested. It says, as, as I think it's First John says, that they went out from us because they were not of us. Their going out shows that they were never one of us. They were among us. Jesus says the wheat and the tares will grow together, and you can't really discern them or try to pluck them out, or you'll cause damage in the body of Christ. He says, let them grow together. I'll sort them out. Wayne Grudem says the terms in verses 4 to 6, and this is my point in all this, by themselves are inconclusive. For they speak of events that are experienced both by genuine Christians and by some people who participate in the fellowship of a church but are never really saved. Right? And all of this aligns with Jesus' teaching. Jesus told us it would be this way. There will be some who show signs of life who are not Christian. There will be some who show signs of life and who make a good start. And you can't tell them apart but they do not endure and bear fruit. These five experiences do not prove salvation. So they're actually those experiences that anyone can have. And the only way to know if they're true Christians or not is by the fruits, which is exactly what the text says. You see in verses 7 and 8 now, he gives illustration of what he's been talking about. And then in verses 9 and 10, he gives explanation. Right? He doesn't just say those things and leave us hanging to say, oh, they were Christian and they lost it. Or, you know, I wonder what he's talking. He tells us, right? He gives an illustration. All right, so let's look at the illustration in verses 7 and 8. When he's telling us by their fruits, you will know them. In 7 and 8, this illustration, he says, in, he says the land has drunk in the rain that often falls on it. Right? So you got all kinds of land. And the rain's fallen on all of it. Jesus says the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's common grace. Right? The rain falls on everyone. It falls on everyone. But, he says, it produces a crop that is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Now, who is that but the Lord who, who scatters seed looking for a harvest, right? For the land is drunk in the rain. If it produces a crop that is useful to those for the sake, if it's fruitful, it receives the blessing of God. It's the work of God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, right? So you've got all the soil is getting rain. Some of the soil produces a crop that's useful to the master, to to the sower. And one soil produces thorns and thistles, right? Verse nine, or verse eight, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless, near to being cursed, right? They're, so you got two soils. you got a soil that bears fruit and a soil that ultimately doesn't. Both of them receive the rain. If this is an illustration of what he just said, what is the rain? I would say that he is saying the rain is the list of experiences. All the good things that God's people and those, if you come to church for a year, in some level you'll experience. 
right? What is the rain? It falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. You can participate in our worship, right? You can share at the Lord's table if you've made a profession of faith. And we can't tell, and that's part of the point. You can share in all these things. The rain is like the experiences of verses 4 and 6. The rain of God's goodness falling on maybe our lives for years. But the distinguishing mark of the work of the Spirit of God is the harvest that is produced. What is the result of all that rain? What is the result of all of that goodness? Did it produce a crop useful to the sower or did it produce thorns and thistles? And for those who say they've made, had some experience, made some profession, walked some mile, checked some box, and their life is producing thorns and thistles, this text is for them. It is the warning, not to those who are genuine believers, whose lives produce a harvest. For us, it's assurance, and he's going to say that. It's a text that brings us assurance, knowing that our lives have gone on and produced spiritual maturity. The reign of God's good gifts is not decisive. Only the long-term fruitfulness, the life that is maturing and growing. And this is what Edwards discovered. This is what he says. You have to look past a person's experiences. You have to look past what they say. You have to look past whether they groaned during, you know, this experience or whether they fell down or whether they shook or whether they did whatever. Whatever it is, he says, you have to look past whatever that is and see what kind of life is produced. You should, in verses 7 and 8, recognize two soils from Jesus' parable in Matthew 13. Do you remember there? Jesus tells a parable of soils. In his parable, there are four soils, right? He says there's a, the, the hard ground on which it fell. That's obviously unfruitful. There was good soil on which it fell. That was obviously fruitful. And he says there were two middle soils, a rocky soil and a thorny soil, right? Middle two soils, it was hard to tell. Right? The hard ground, you saw nothing. They rejected it. The good ground, you see a harvest. Obvious. The middle two grounds, it says they sprang up for a time. And it's hard to tell what kind of soil this is. It has an initial response. It springs up green. But the text tells us it does not last. And it is not fruitful. It doesn't tell us, right? It's, it's not... He does not tell us if the soil is, you cannot tell if the soil is good by looking at the initial response. The middle two soils look the same as the good soil at first, right? They spring up and there's green and it looks good. But it says it doesn't produce a harvest, it is choked out. Only one good soil produces a harvest. So listen to Matthew 13, 21. It says for this, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Makes some kind of profession. Joins a church. Participates in communion. Hangs out in the church for a couple of years. It's a nice guy or a nice girl. But then it says this, and this is the determinative thing. Yet they had no root in himself. It endures for a while. But when tribulation and persecution come, when they are tested, you can't know until they're tested whether they're good soil or not. Tribulation and persecution come, they arise on account of the word, and immediately they fall away. Compare this to Paul's encouragement. 
in Romans 8, 35 and 37. I want us to notice if you, in that Matthew 13, right at the end there, he says that when tribulation and persecution come, they immediately fall away. That, that's the testing that produces the fall, the, the leaving. Tribulation and persecution. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. 35 and 37, Paul asks the question, what shall separate us from the love of God? He is asking, what can cause us to lose our salvation? Isn't that the question? What can separate us? What can cause you and I to be separated from the love of Christ, to lose our salvation? What is it? Listen to the first things that Paul says. What can separate us? Shall tribulation Distress or persecution. Tribulation and persecution there, literally the identical words that Jesus uses in that parable. When the, when the tribulation and the testing come, you're going to find out what kind of soil it is. Whether it perseveres, whether it falls away immediately because it didn't have any root. It never was fruitful. It never produced the harvest. Or whether it is good soil. Right, when persecution, Paul says, when tribulation and distress and persecution come, or famine or nakedness or dangerous, or any suffering, anything comes, he says, what shall separate us? Shall these things separate us? He says, no, these things will not separate those who are in Christ. They will not. No, in these things, in fact, these things, you are more than conquerors. Not only will you not fall away, you're conquerors. Right, to the false believer, to the false professor, the testing comes. It shows that they're not a believer. But when the testing comes on a believer, what shall separate you? Any of these things? No, he's saying whatever your future holds. If you end up persecuted, you end up driven down, you end up naked, poor, you end up under the sword, you end up executed in jail because the government's persecuting you for your Christian stance. Whatever these things, he says, no, my friends, do not fear. What can separate you? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. In fact, he ends it and he goes, shall then life or death or height or this or spirits or that, future or present, can the future do it? No, he says. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. And it's the same two words that Jesus says when it came upon these middle soils. Hey, they fell away. They went to the test. And they showed that they were not. Genuine believers, despite their experience, despite the initial response and the green and the, the initial joy that they had. See, my friends, if the middle two soils are Christians who have lost their salvation, Paul is wrong. When persecution comes, you can lose it. Jesus said so. But if the middle soils are people who are saved and lost it, then Paul is wrong. Persecution and, and, and suffering can cause you to lose your salvation. Jesus says it happened immediately to these people. But it happens immediately on those who are tested and who show that they're not believers. Because who can separate us? What can separate us? Paul says none of these things. See, the point in the parable, the point in Romans, I mean in Hebrews 6, 7 and 8, and in this parable, when the rocky soil is tested, it reveals it's not good soil. The rain fell on all the soil. In verse 7 it said, for those who produced a fruit... We see God's blessing. We see God's work. The others that produce thorns and thistles, middle soil, not good soil. Never was. There never was a harvest. 
The author's point is just because the soil experienced the rain of verses 4 to 6, you can only know them by their fruit. And in the end, you'll have one or the other harvest. Jesus says this in Matthew 17 17 and 20. He says this, every healthy tree bears good fruit. Every diseased tree bears bad fruit. You could say every healthy soil bears fruit. Every not healthy soil bears bad fruit. You'll recognize them, whether they're good soil or bad soil, by their fruit. He's not saying your fruit, if you bear bad fruit, you're going to end up being a bad tree. He's saying saying the other way around. If you bear bad fruit, it shows that you're a diseased tree. The diseased tree shows itself in its fruit, not the other way around. Oh, you were a good tree, but then you bore bad fruit, and then you became bad. He doesn't say any of that. He says, look, you got good trees, you got bad trees, and you're going to know which is which by their fruit. You're going to know the saved or the unsaved. You're going to know the righteous and the unrighteous by the fruit that they bear. The author makes this even more clear in verses 9 and 10 as he goes from the illustration to the explanation. Right, So he says, you know, this is the illustration of good and bad soils. In 9, he says, we speak this way about bad soil and thorns and all these experiences. We speak this way in your case, but in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Better than what? Better than thorny soil and all the experiences he's been talking about that obviously didn't prove determinative in any sense, right? We're... He says, I expect better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. I I don't expect these other things alone, but I expect more than that. I expect a harvest of fruitfulness. I expect those things which belong to salvation, which is to say I've been talking about things that don't belong to salvation. If he's saying they all belong to salvation, then he wouldn't say that. He would say it differently. I'm talking about those people who persevere in, you know, their goodness and so show them, you know, save in a sense themselves by continuing to be good and not blowing it, not sinning it away. He expects better things, things that belong to salvation. The experiences he's been talking about do not necessarily belong to salvation. The experiences, the decisions for Jesus, walking the aisle, checking the box, having this experience, seeing this vision, having this dream, having this feeling, whatever it is. He says none of it is decisive. Only lasting, fruitful Christian living belongs to salvation. True Christians persevere. So finally, my friends, he ends where he began. Press on to maturity, he says in verses 11 to 12. The passage ends where it began. The concern of the author is that people are not sluggish, lazy, and so prove unfruitful. And it should light, so for those who are not believers, this may, again, there may be an immediate response of, you know, joy, but it will not last. When the testing come and life goes on, the pleasures of this life, the suffering of this life, they will fall away. It will not last. But for those who are in Christ, he is calling us. It lights a fire under us, right? It is a sober word, is it not? I mean, it's a sober word, but it's a word that says press on. Pursue growth and maturity. Pursue the rich things of Christ. Pursue the rich understanding and the power of his word in your life. Pursue love for God's people and service in his kingdom. These are the very things he mentions in verse 10. God is not unjust to overlook 
the things that pertain to salvation, your work and the love that you have shown for his name and, and in serving the saints as you still do, these are the signs, the fruits of a true work of the Spirit of God in changing the soul. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, stand nowhere else, believe nothing else, know only that you can stand on that day saying, if I have any hope, it's because Jesus bore my sin on the cross. And he paid my debt. And I trust in him alone. That is the only way you will ever stand. But that seed of true and saving and living faith will begin to bring, bring a harvest. Will begin to change your life, your heart, your, your, your choices, your living when a person is born again, the scripture says when you are born again, a new living spiritual principle of life is implanted in the soul of the believer. And that seed, that new birth produces a harvest infallibly, invariably. We can be sluggish and it may be slow in coming. But for those who know and love him, the author's pastoral desire is for God's people to grow, to move on to maturity, to be fruitful, to be earnest. Verse 11 uses that word, uh, to be this earnestness of which he calls us. Earnest is the opposite of, of lazy, right? Of sluggish, right? Of not serious, right? That, uh, earnest is to be serious and full of life and vigor for the things of God. He wants true Christians to have a settled assurance, and that's what verse 11 says. To show the same earnestness and to have a full assurance of hope until the end. To have a full assurance, to have no doubt. He wants that. The text here is not to shake your, da- your, your assurance unless you need it shaken. There are some who need it shaken, and that's why it's here. That's why it says it. But for those who know him and love him and are following him, and who see the fruits in their life and their character, the fruits of the Spirit, and the fruits of a, as he says, a love for his name, a worship of his name, and a service to his people and in the kingdom. For those of you who, who know this fruit and know that you know him, he says there, he, he wants us to have the full assurance of our hope that is in Christ. And you can have it as we press on into maturity. And that all that God has for us See, past experiences are only important insofar as they are the beginning of an earnest pursuit and a present fruitfulness. You can look at those experiences, but if there is not a ongoing pursuit that has come out of it and a growing holiness and a growing fruitfulness, then those experiences are suspect. Jonathan Edwards says this, It is God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way. It is not God's design that men or women should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption that is growing in holiness, you know, being done with sin, turning away from it, trying to grow more like Jesus every day, mortifying corruption, increasing in grace, obtaining a lively exercise of a life of faith. Assurance is not so much to be obtained by self-examination of past experiences and things that I can say, well, this is but by action. What are you saying is a present fruitfulness that you can see and you know the work of God in your life today. 
right now. Rain falls on all of us. The experiences of the church and of the Christian things falls on all of us. But the question is, what fruit is coming from it in your life? Are you growing? Are you fruitful? Are you maturing? False faith rests satisfied in itself and in its experiences. Something in the past. I checked that box when I was eight. Right? False faith rests on some past experience where saving faith produces a heart after God and a life of growing holiness and obedience. The true work of the Spirit of God in the soul creates a love for God and His people, a heart of worship and a light of fruitfulness. My friends, these are the things that belong to salvation. Let us not be sluggish, but let us go on to maturity. The Word of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We pray that you would use it to stir us. Father, for those who have not moved beyond the basics, I pray that they would press into maturity for us who have grown sluggish and weak in our love for you and our pursuit of spiritual things. We pray that you would push us forward, call us forward, fill us with your spirit, enable us. If you will allow, then we will press on. Father, we want to see our lives be fruitful for your glory, for the good of your church, for the good of your kingdom, for the spreading of the gospel, for the glory of Christ and the honor of your name first in our own life where the fruit is seen and in the ministry that flows. Father, have mercy on us. Come and assure those who need assurance by the fruits that you have borne in their life. And Father, shake those who need shaking we'd be awakened from our sluggishness to pursue Jesus earnestly. For it is in his name that we ask and pray. Amen.